And if you have your Bible, you turn to John chapter 11. If you're not already there, that's the passage we'll be in. Obviously now the, the, the cat's out of the bag. I had you bring lunch because we're going to go through 57 verses. <laughs> we might have to take a break and let you go get lunch and bring it back and disobey the rule, I guess. All kidding aside, this is a great chapter of the Bible, and uh, we're going to have today a a message to kind of encapsulate the idea, I think, of the passage, the whole idea of the passage, the theme of the passage, so to speak. And then we're going to come back in subsequent weeks and unpack the details, okay? We're not going to get down on the minute level today. We want to stay up above and kind of hover over John chapter 11 and look at it from a little bit of a distance So we can see a little into the mind, I believe, of John and also into the mind of the Holy Spirit. I want to bring a message this morning entitled, I Am the Resurrection and the Life. That is the purpose of John chapter 11. If you just wanted to put a summation on the whole chapter, 57 verses, you would take out of this chapter... The statement of Jesus Christ in the middle of the chapter almost, in verse 25 in your Bible, where He tells them, I am the resurrection and the life. And that's the title of the message. You can tell I have originality flowing through my veins. And this message series will be entitled, Death. An opportunity to display God's glory. That'll be the message series. John gives the purpose of his gospel in John 20, verses 30 through 31, when he writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that By believing, you may have life in His name. The theme of the book of John, the whole gospel is written so that you might believe in Jesus as the Messiah, the promised one, the Christ, the Son of God. And in believing in Him, you might have life eternal, eternal life in His name. And so, we look at this book, and we look at the Bible, and we might say that it would be alright to summarize the whole Bible with John's summary of his book. I would say to you that God wrote 66 books, thousands of verses, for one purpose. That you might believe in Jesus as the Christ. The Son of God, and by believing in Him, you might have life in His name. Sixty-six books, thousands of verses, forty-four human authors, one purpose. Believe in Jesus Christ so that you might have life. And so, I think it would be good if you take your friends and your family and your co-workers when they ask questions about Christianity to the book of John. And just ask them, will you read the book of John with me? And can we just have some simple question and answer times about the book of John? 
Because in this book we get the whole theme of the book. Believing in Christ. John's Gospel is beautifully written. I've I've fallen more and more in love with it. It's the simplest Greek. The original language, the Greek, it's the simplest in all of the New Testament. He writes some of the most theologically deep and rich truths in sentences like, I am the resurrection and the life. I mean, he, he captures whole thoughts in a few little words. John communicates on a level that is not matched anywhere else in the Bible. It's beautiful how God moved his mind and how his mind moved. My granddad used to joke that John wrote so well because he was a young man when he wrote the book. All the other disciples were much older than him. And his mind's still where he said, when you get old like me, your mind won't work that well anymore. And so he always used to argue for an early aging of the book because he, kiddingly, he used to say, only a young man's mind works that way. And it's, it's, it's simple and yet it's deep and intricate. He organizes his material. Listen to this. He organizes material in groups of seven. Three groups of seven. Now, Hebrew numerology, biblical numbers have meaning. John wants you to know that Jesus is the Son of God and believe in Him so that you might have life. So he did this. He said this whole book is going to be organized around two numbers, three and seven. Three is the number of spiritual unity. We see it in things like the Trinity, right? All of the Hebrew people who were John's first audience would have looked at it and said, that's neat. And seven, three groups of seven, seven is the number in the Hebrew numerological chart. Seven is spiritual perfection. John wrote a book so you might believe that Jesus Christ is unified with the Father. Therefore, He is God. And by believing He is God, you might have eternal life or reach spiritual perfection. I don't think it's any accident that John did that. I think John wants to preach his point beginning to end. You might call it the gospel for dummies. You know, anybody can see it. He repeats it. Over and over again, this theme of Jesus as the Son of God. Seven, the first seven is seven teachings. Seven didactic portions of Jesus' earthly ministry. And they're found, you can jot these down if you have a piece of paper. We're not going to turn to all of them. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 36 is the teaching of Jesus Christ on the new birth or being born again. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Regeneration is the theme. John 4, verses 1 through 42, he says that he is the water of life. He says, lady, you can drink water out of this well from your father Jacob, and you're going to get thirsty again, but I'll give you life giving water. That you'll never thirst again. He's the water of life. The second of his seven teachings. 
Not the second teaching of Jesus. These are the ones John selected under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to organize his book around to teach you that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that you would believe in Him and have eternal life. He picked these seven out of thousands of teaching opportunities. John chapter 5, 19 through 24, where Jesus just bluntly says He is the divine or the God-given Son. John 6, 22 through 66, is the teaching on the bread of life. Right after multiplying the bread for all of the multitude, he then says, I'm the bread of life. If you're hungry, eat of this bread and you'll live forever. John 7, 1 through 52, the life-giving Spirit. He says, the ones who are in me, I will give them the Spirit which will then spring up to life from their heart. They'll have wells of living water that will flow out of them. John 8, 12 through 59. He, Jesus says simply at the tabernacle, the feast of the tabernacles, I am the light of the world. John chapter 10, the final teaching of Jesus' public ministry. John 10, 1 through 42. I am the good shepherd. And we've just talked about the good shepherd. We've meditated on the thought of Jesus as the good shepherd. Seven teachings. Now, he not only organizes around seven teachings, he goes back and organizes on seven signs. Seven signs that Jesus is God, or miracles, you might call them. John 6, excuse me, John 2, verses 1 through 11, Jesus changes water into wine. John 4, 46 through 54, he heals the nobleman's son. John 5, 1 through 18, he heals the lame man. In John 6, 1 through 15, he feeds 5,000 men, about 20,000 or so people, from just a few loaves of bread and a few fish. John 6, 16 through 21, Jesus walked on the top of water to the disciples. In John 9, 1 through 41, a whole chapter is given to healing a blind man that was blind from his birth, never been done before in history. Only God can give that man sight. John 11, 1 through 57, our passage, the final public ministry done by Jesus Christ. He raises Lazarus from the dead. Remember the purpose. He's the Christ. He's the Son of God. Believe in Him and have life in His name. Seven teachings that tell us that. Seven signs that tell us that. And seven I Am statements. Remember I told you John is the simplest. He puts deep theology in little sentences. Listen to the words of Jesus. In John 6, verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. In John 8, verse 12, He says, I am the light of the world. In John 10, 9, He says, I am the door. In John 10, 11, He says, I am the good shepherd. In John 11, 25, in our passage, He says, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, 6, the, one of the most famous of His I am statements, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except by me. And then finally, John 15, 1, I am 
the true vine. There can be no question of the fact that John wants and has a deep desire that all men believe in Jesus as the Christ. And that by believing in Him as the Messiah, as the Son of God, as our Savior, we have life in His name. And we've come to this most famous passage in John 11, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. In our journey through John, we've come to this, the last public event of Jesus' ministry. This is it. He's headed to the cross. As a matter of fact, Jesus' crucifixion is sealed in human terms. It's sealed by what takes place in this passage. He had escaped their death threats several times. But after raising a man who had been dead for four days from the dead and having literally thousands of people believe in Him, the Jewish leadership would not fail in hanging Him as one who is a blasphemous traitor to the Jewish nation. This event that we're studying sealed it. The crucifixion. And that ought to thrill you. That ought to make you excited about John chapter 11. Because had they not moved in their hearts to the point of hating Him and crucifying Him, you and I would have no hope of salvation. God sovereignly moved through the hearts of wicked and sinful men to bring about His redemption. And it all comes to a climax in John 11. It's important to note that this miracle is absent from the other Gospels. It's not mentioned. And that causes a lot of scholars a lot of grief. Why would Matthew, Mark, and Luke not record for us this magnificent display of His being God and having power over death? Why, we might ask. I can give you a lot of reasons. I'll give you my reason, okay? Just in case you run up against anybody says, John 11 is a fictitious story and it's from the mind of John. No, it's a true story. Peter was not with the disciples when this occurred. I do not believe he's there. I'll give you just a couple of reasons. One, I think he was left in Galilee. Two, he's not mentioned anywhere until he's picked back up later at the upper room. I think he came for the Passover to Judea and found the disciples. I don't think he was with them in this window. I'll give you another, another evidence that really stands out to me. In John 11, in verse 16, why is it not Peter who speaks up on behalf of the group? Find me anywhere else in any of the Gospels where Peter doesn't rise as the leader and say, a speech to either convince or stop an action by the disciples as a group. There is none. Why Thomas? Because Peter wasn't there. And Peter didn't go. And Peter didn't see Lazarus raised from the dead. So when he recounted his story to Mark, who wrote Mark's Gospel, he didn't include this story before he was not an eyewitness to this. He heard about it. He believed in it. But he didn't see it. 
And one thing is true, all of the accounts we have of the gospel are eyewitness accounts. Peter can't talk about this in his gospel, and I believe Matthew and Luke, following Mark as a source, didn't include it. John was there. And John saw it. And John places it in an order so that it will cause us to see the importance of this event at the end of his life. Now, there's another secondary reason. The other disciples, or the other accounts of the gospel, record Jairus' daughter being raised from the dead. This isn't the first time Jesus raised somebody from the dead. Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead. And Matthew records it in chapter 9, verse 18. And Mark in 5, verse 22. And Luke in chapter 8, verse 41. Luke even records the widow of Nain, whose son, her only son, was raised by Jesus Christ out of consideration of her plight without a male to carry on the name of her family. They had already recorded that he had power over death. There's no question and no dispute that he had power over death. All of the accounts have that. But this one, by the sovereign move of the Spirit, is saved for us for John's Gospel. As a, as a turning event, the end of his public ministry, which led to his crucifixion, John writes and records for us this story in such a way that it's very memorable. And I want to pull out, since I'm not doing all the details, just a couple of little details for you. First of all, Lazarus' resurrection is a key event because it's the only time someone is raised from the dead after days of death. Four days to be exact. That's not coincidental. The rabbis taught, rabbis taught, the Spirit hovered outside the tomb for three days. For three days. If the flesh was sinless, the soul would re-enter and the person would be resurrected. And Jesus waited four days so they could have no doubt that He was dead. That He was a sinner, that He had suffered the curse of death, and that He was good and dead. He wasn't coming back. Nobody could raise Him. His sister said this way, Lord, He stinketh, in King James Version. He stinketh. Lazarus was dead for four days. Nobody could raise him from the dead. It's public. Jairus' son was raised, and I mean, Jairus' daughter was raised, and the widow's son was raised in, in a semi public. This was on full display, as I said, for hundreds of people, which spread to thousands of people across the region of Judea as they were gathering for the Passover. It's, it's significant. This resurrection is significant, significant because it is very public, and finally, it is in Judea that this takes, takes place, not in Galilee. And it's in Judea after, after they had determined to kill Him. We see that in the conversation He has with Thomas and the other disciples. If we go back, Lord, they'll kill us. 
And so Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead because He is the resurrection and the life. Let me give you a quick overview of the book, of the chapter. First of all, Jesus seeks the glory of God even in death. Even in death. And I wrote it that way because He seeks it in Lazarus' death and in His own death. Jesus seeks the glory of God even in death. We need not question God's motives in times of trial. If you look at the first four verses, I make this very practical observation for you and with you. Some of you are going through hard times. Some of you have had hard times for years, and you see no end in sight. And right now in your flesh, you question God's wisdom and His character based on the fact that you're suffering. And all I would like to say to you is, you have no idea what God is doing with your suffering. Do you not think that Martha and Mary questioned Jesus about His not being with Lazarus when Lazarus was about to die? Do you not think they questioned Him even more when He could have made the trip from where He was to Bethany in less than a day, and yet they waited three more days for Him to show up? Don't you think they questioned Him just a little about how wise it was His approach to their trial and their suffering. And I'll say to you, sometimes you may question His approach to your trial and your suffering. And all I can say is, He has motive and reason that we cannot understand. He moves in a mysterious way to break out among His people in ways of blessing we could never imagine. We need not question God's motive in a time of trial. You know, there was many people questioning God or questioning Christ, I'm sure, as Lazarus is his friend and he's sick and there's been messengers sent to him and yet he does nothing. He does nothing. He just sits there. We should willingly follow Christ even if it costs us our lives because death is an opportunity for God to be glorified. I make this simple observation in verses 5 through 16. Thomas is so beaten up, isn't he? Because everybody always recalls after the resurrection that he was the one not in the room. And when they told him, Jesus is alive, he said, I won't believe it, lest I stick my hand in his side, lest I put my fingers in the nail prints. I won't believe unless I see it. And people always bash on poor Thomas. How could he be that way? He doesn't have any faith. That's a pretty arrogant statement, don't you think? I mean, Thomas saw him die. Thomas saw him buried. Thomas had no reason to believe that the Savior was alive. His whole world had been destroyed in a matter of a few hours. And just days later, they tell you that your friend's alive again. It's a tough one to swallow. And nobody talks about him in this instance. I tell you, Thomas, do not refer to him as doubting. His name, Didymus, does not mean that. His name means twin. He had a twin brother somewhere. He's not doubting. I want you to refer to him and think of him as courageous. 
Thomas. Courageous Thomas. Because Jesus said, let's go to Judea. Remember, they just tried to stone him in Judea. And they had threatened the life of anyone who lived with him as his disciple. And it's Thomas who rises among the eleven that are there and says, if he goes to Judea, we go to Judea. Let's die with him. I don't take it as a doubting Thomas. I take it as a courageous Thomas. A statement of fact. Not a fact that he could carry out, obviously, in just a few weeks from this moment. A few months from this moment. He runs when he has the opportunity to die, okay? But put yourself where he is. The gun's pointed at your head. What will be your answer? Die with him or deny him? Thomas said, let's go die. And I'm telling you, that is a God-honoring position to take. Oh, that our deaths, oh, that our deaths would be an opportunity for God to be glorified. Whether it's by natural cause that we die, or whether it's by the hands of those who hate the Lord Jesus Christ under persecution that we die. Let our deaths count for His glory. Like Thomas was prepared. Jesus seeks the glory of God even in death. And Thomas is Christ-like in this attitude. Death's just an opportunity for God to be God and to be glorified. Secondly, in this chapter, we see that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And so I ask a question of this this section. These are all thumbnails of messages that I'll preach in John 11. Okay? I know there's a lot of detail here. Don't get down that far. Stay up here. Do you have the faith of Martha and Mary? Look at the miraculous faith of these two women. In verse in these verses in 17 and following when Martha heard that he was there, she didn't wait on him to come, feeling sorry for herself, stricken with grief over the death of her brother who she loved dearly. She didn't sit and mourn. She jumped up, ran outside the village, and met him on the road. And look what she says to him. Lord, look at this faith. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. So I'm asking you, Christ Fellowship, do you have the faith of Martha? She's not reprimanding Jesus. She's not questioning He is not coming. She's just stating the fact. You are God. If you've been here, my brother would not have died. What faith. What faith. She's not even seen the resurrection yet of Jesus. She has no written New Testament to follow. She doesn't have all Paul's instructions to the church or the miracles performed in Acts or the forming of a church body in front of her eyes. All she has is Jesus Christ and she's saying... You are God. If you'd been here, He wouldn't have died. I believe in you. 
Do you have that kind of faith? Look at what Mary says. Martha sent word to her. And look at her response. When she got the word, in verse 31 it says, that all the Jews noticed she ran out. I mean, she sprinted to where Jesus was. And she fell at His feet. May I say something about the faith of Mary? She has faith because she worships Jesus Christ as God. She falls down at His feet. And look at her statement of faith. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. So I'm just asking this morning as we survey this passage, do you have the faith of Mary and of Martha? Are you looking at the odds and saying, I might or might not make it? Or are you looking at His face and saying, whether I make it or not, to God be the glory? As bad as this is, my God shall supply all of my needs. As tough as this trial, as sure as my death is, yet will I praise Him. That's what these ladies did. Because they knew Christ. And they worshipped Him as God. Jesus is compassionate and filled with mercy. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. We get that in this this paragraph. What a great statement. He says, Your brother will live again. Your brother will rise again. In verse 23. Martha, your brother will rise again. And she begins to talk about the last day. And Jesus says, no, no, no. No. I am the resurrection and the life, Martha. The ones who believe in me, even though they physically die, yet they are alive. That's in the aorist tense. In other words, it began in the past, this life. It began when you trusted in Him as your Savior. And you cannot die. You cannot die. He has taken the sting of death. He has given us a life which cannot be revoked. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life if you believe in me. Even though you die, yet shall you live. Do you believe? Do you believe this? Again, look at the remarkable faith of this woman. Yes. She's never seen a resurrection. Yes. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. John's purpose for writing the book is in John 11 over and over and over because this is the climax of Christ's story on the earth. John 11 is the climax of his story. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and he's filled with compassion. Those famous verses where he weeps. He weeps, and we'll talk about that in weeks to come. May I just tell you, he's not crying. I don't believe he's crying here because of death. I don't believe he's crying because he knows Lazarus is coming back from heaven. I think he's crying because the people he loves 
hurting. And because he is such a high, great high priest that he is not removed from our struggles and troubles, yet he feels them. And when we weep, he weeps. He feels our pain. He carries our burdens. And so as he looked at this mass of weeping humanity, all these Jews, <laughs> mourning, wailing, crying in front of this tomb, and he looks at Martha and Mary, I believe his spirit, the, the word that's translated that he was moved, that his spirit was moved, you see it in the text? That means that he groaned. He outwardly groaned. You couldn't, nobody understood what he did. But he groaned. Some of you have groaned like that. Some of you have groaned when your wife died, when your mother died, when your father died. Some of you have groaned when your children passed away. And Jesus has groaned just that way. And He knows the way you feel. And He feels with you your pain. And yet He looks at death in the face And he has defeated it. We see that in this next paragraph. Jesus rules over death and the grave. Jesus is undeterred by the stench of death. That, 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 that is amazing to me. She says, Lord, if, if you take away that stone, the stench of death will come. Because he's been dead for four days. His body's breaking down. He's decomposing. And Jesus, undeterred, says, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? He doesn't flinch. He stares down the worst enemy of mankind and he doesn't flinch. He doesn't waver. He doesn't change course. Jesus is undeterred by death. And Jesus sovereignly calls Lazarus from the dead. I mean, as we look at this, He doesn't give Lazarus a choice in the matter. He doesn't look in the grave and say, Lazarus, would you like to come back? He doesn't say, well, I'd like to bring Lazarus out. Would anybody else like to come? He speaks with authority, sovereignly, raising a man from the dead by the power of his word. Lazarus, I, I, when, he, when he said that, when he said that name, that corpse sprung to life. The breath of life returned. All ears. As Samuel in the temple said, Yes, Lord, I'm listening. Lazarus stood up and said, Yes, Lord, I'm listening. Come forth. All who come to me, I will not cast out. 
Anyone the Father draws to me, I will save. Sovereignty over life and death. Over life and death physically, over life and death spiritually. When you die, it will be because He has said, it is your day to die. When you are born again, it will be because He says, it is your day to be born again. And it's irrevocable. Lazarus not only didn't get asked, would you like to come out? Lazarus couldn't resist when Jesus said, come out. As a matter of fact, John wants you to know that. Look what he says in verse 44. The man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips. He was wrapped up. He could not walk. He could not move. And just so you don't think he could guide his way out of that tomb, he said, and by the way, his face cloth still covered his eyes. He was blind. He was lame. He was dead. In this, and we're going to preach this, I'm going to preach this message. In this one paragraph, we have every symbol of eternal, of regeneration. In one paragraph. Blind. Dead. Lame. They're all here. Why? Because John wants you to believe in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, and believing in Him, you have eternal life in His name. And He brought it all together in this one chapter. It's His manifesto. It's the peak. It's the pinnacle. It's the top of the greatest gospel account in the Bible. God is sovereign. Jesus is sovereign over death. And He calls Lazarus from death to life sovereignly. Finally, Jesus is either accepted by faith or rejected out of the hardness of heart. In verse 45, it says, Many of the Jews believed. Hundreds, possibly thousands of Jews believed off this one event. It shook Jerusalem to its foundation. It went all the way to the high priest, Caiaphas. These people believed out of faith in Christ. But there's also the opportunity to reject Him. And we see it. It's not the intent of the Jewish leadership to believe. Look what Caiaphas says. It's better for one man to die and the nation live. That's a hard heart. That's a heart like Pharaoh. Seeing the power of God, he rejects God. He rejects Christ. He rejects eternal life. We're going to see just how powerful the end of this chapter is when it says the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. And just because I had the prerogative of doing it, I find it. I find it. 
a sense of humor from John and from the Holy Spirit that the next event is Mary anointing his feet. And the next event that it centers around Jesus is him parading through the streets of Jerusalem. You want me? You can have me. Jesus is Christ. He's the Son of God. And if you believe in Him, you will have eternal life in His name. Now, I don't know everybody here. We have visitors. We have people who are friends of the church. If I could leave you with this one thing, it would be this. You will either accept by faith that He is the Son of God, or you you will reject Him, but know the consequence. When you reject Him, you are rejecting the only hope of salvation. You are rejecting life in His name. You are standing in opposition to the sovereign God, the creator of heaven and earth, the friend of sinners, the savior of everyone who believes. You are rejecting the judge who will preside over your sentence of death. That's why John wrote John chapter 11. So that you might believe. And you might have life. Let's pray. Father.